Well, good evening. Welcome. Um, ushers are here. They're going to be taking our weekly uh, tithes and offering. Thanks for your faithfulness in giving consistently and giving sacrificially. Uh, not, not to us, but, but to this kingdom purpose thing that, that we're all about, that, that God's been doing. We're in a series here as we uh, are wrapping up here over the next two weeks. And then we'll be taking a break here for the summer. But we're looking at what, what makes up 70% of our Bible, the Old Testament. Um, you know, I think there's a really interesting question. What, what does God want? You ever thought about that? What does God want? If we're guys, we've asked the question, what does a woman want? Right? But what, what, what does God really want? And I would suggest that asking this question and coming up with an answer to it actually kind of... Uh, helps us distill and understand different philosophies, different religious perspectives. If you look at Islam, for instance, the God of Islam, Allah, um, primarily in the Quran, he's, he's not revealing his character, he's not revealing who he is, he's revealing primarily his will. He is, he is at his essence sort of a, a volitional being. And so what Allah wants is submission, in fact, that's what the name Islam means, to, to submit. That's, that's what he's looking for. If you were to think back about the ancient Mesopotamian religions, the religions are the context in which the Old Testament Hebrew Bible arises. These gods, these gods are kind of exalted, superhuman beings. And they're, they're kind of ruled by their appetites. Their appetites for, for food, for sex, for pleasure. So most fundamentally, what, what, the, what these gods would want would be humanity to meet their needs, humanity to satisfy their needs, but otherwise kind of just stay out of the way. Um, you know, there, the uh, ancient, account, ancient accounts, so there's one of them that um, gives a, a sort of parallel account to the, to the Noahic um, flood story. And the reason why he judges is not because of a moral issue or sin, but because humanity is just so stinking loud. They're so loud down there, I can't even hear. So acting capriciously at times, but just want to be left alone except when I need you to meet my needs. And, th and then this group of people who, who serve this God named Yahweh, the Hebrews, wh what does Yahweh want, the God of the Hebrew people? See, the Genesis story, their, their, their beginning account, paints a picture of a God who, who is engaged in relationship. And, and, and he's designed, he says, these people for relationship, primarily with him, and then secondarily for relationship with one another. And I would suggest that what, what this God wants, more than anything else, is fidelity. Our Latin word, faith, fide, comes from this. Being faithful, being loyal. See, because any, any meaningful relationship that you have that's, that's significant, that's purposeful in your life, I guarantee you this is what you want from it. You want that person to be faithful to you, to be looking out for your good, for your own interest, to hold to the commitments that they have made to you. you this sort of stands out. You think about some of the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew prophets. Hosea, fast forward in the future, is this, is this prophet that, that, that God comes to and he wants to somehow kind of like highlight and, and put an exclamation point on this for the people because they don't seem to get it. And he goes, I want, you to act, I want you to act out my relationship with my people, Hosea. And he says, I want you to go find this woman and, and she's, she's a prostitute. I want you to marry her. And he does. And then later she's going to run off on you. 
and you go get her again and you bring her back. And then she's going to run off again and you go get her and you keep bringing her back. And as people kind of look at you and you go, man, you're, you're a moron. You should, you should ditch this chick. That's, that's when they're all listening and he goes, that's what God's doing with you. You lack fidelity. You're not faithful. You're not loyal to this God. And when that fidelity was first broken, we go back to the early Genesis account. When that fidelity was broken in Genesis 3, humanity loses something that's like so key, so important. Remember, they have the presence of God himself in the garden. And, and when, that, when that fidelity is broken, they, they lose that relationship and they lose really the presence of God. But it also deeply fractures the fidelity between this direction as well in their own relationships, and they, they sort of turn against God, and, and they turn against each other. And God makes this, makes this really interesting promise, and it's real vague early on, even in Genesis. He, he sort of says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to restore the fidelity. And it's not entirely clear how he's going to do it, what he's going to do. It's a bit of a mystery. But later on, we, we see through the narrative is that it's going to somehow involve this one guy named Abraham. And we talked last week about this whole idea of Abraham and the role that he played. But he said, out of, out of this one guy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create a whole nation of people. And God promised him, remember, he said, you're going to have a lot of descendants. They're, they're, they're going to be blessed. And, and through, through them, I'm going to kind of do this really great, amazing thing for the whole entire world. And remember last week, we saw this really kind of odd thing that happened where God said, I'm going to use them. Uh, I'm going to bring them to this land. He promised land. He goes, but not yet. Remember, he said, the Canaanites are there, and their evil has not yet reached its full extent. So it's sort of like a holding pattern until it, if and when it hits that point. And so Israel's in slavery for like 430 years. And see, when Israel, you know, there's Abraham, there's his son Isaac, there's the grandson Jacob, and then the 12 kids. And one of those 12 is Joseph, and Joseph is kind of the first one who gets to Egypt and, and through a, a series of events, he, he, he brings his whole family there, but it's just a family. It's a, it's, a, it's a small community at this point, but they have an identity. They always say, yeah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we serve Yahweh. They knew who they were. They were a people with a very clear identity. And then see, what happens is 430 years later, Joseph's gone. Many generations have come and gone. There's a massive nation. It's not a little family with a clear identity. But they have absolutely lost their identity. They have now what people call slave, slave mentality. Slave mentality is where, where you kind of move to a place where you, you just sort of act on your sort of moment-by-moment moment daily needs. And, and you kind of live within the worldview of the context around you. Whatever is provided for you, you kind of take that on. And you don't really search anymore. You don't seek because you know tomorrow is going to be the same pointless day as today was, and there's this kind of hopeless giving up picture. And through that, you're, you're demoralized. You lose your sense of self. You lose a sense of purpose, a sense of mission. Does God have me doing anything? And so this nation, after 430 years, generationally has just lived in this slave mentality, completely losing something that's key, identity. And so as the Israelites... Later, look back, they say, 
Okay, there are three defining moments. You ever have like a defining moment in your life? Like think about that. What's something you'd say, man, this, when this happened, when I got this job, when I met this person, when I made this decision based on a conviction to do something, or, or, or when this traumatic event happened in my, it was a defining moment. It like gives shape to who I would say Brent is. We all have defining moments. Israel would point to three hugely defining moments after they had lost their identity as to how, how they regained that and what that was. And some of this is in your bulletin there. The first one I would suggest is the, the exodus itself. Now, this is this miraculous deliverance from what is the most powerful nation in the known world at the time, Egypt. And we see this in Exodus 1 through 18. And what they, what they learned through it is, Yahweh, this God, was saying, uh, I will rescue you. I can do it. My power is sufficient. I have the ability to do this miraculous thing. And that was the kind of thing that you know, really propelled who they were. That's why Israel still goes back to the, you know, we were rescued out of slavery. That, that God did this miraculous thing. I do the rescuing, God says. The second defining moment for Israel was this idea of his divine presence returning to their, their tabernacle at the time. As they're, they're nomadic, they don't have a land yet. They're promised land, but they're not in Egypt and they're not in the land. They're somewhere in between. And so as they travel, the presence of God, we read, came in the form of this cloud. And it said the cloud would, would, would sort of settle down upon the tabernacle. And when it was there, it was like, God's with us. And then when it lifted, they could go. They could move. So they would move, they'd travel, and they'd put, and then when God's presence came down, they stopped. And they said, okay, we don't, we don't travel until God's presence lifts again. And then finally, when they build a, an actual tabernacle, like a little bit more of a secure place, God's presence comes there in a powerful way, and it's like staying there. And that, that element, because Moses, in Exodus 33, when he's, he's saying to God, he goes, God, you know, I, I, I can't believe what you've done for us. I can't believe the way you've called us, the way you're working through us. But there's one little thing. What distinguishes us from all the other groups? Because there's lots of gods out there. Like, what distinguishes us? And if you're, if you're not going to go with us, don't send us, because I don't want to go alone. I, I don't want to leave them. I need presence. And so God says, here's, here's going to be the thing that distinguishes from you. My presence is going to be with you. And see, this is an echoing back to Genesis 3, because that was lost. God's presence was lost. So it was this confirmation that you're on the right track. God is with me in his presence. And then the third defining moment is the, the giving of, of a covenant or a law at Mount Sinai. We see this, sort of all the details of it from Exodus 19 through about Numbers chapter 10. So you go back to the ancient Near East, there are like lots of different uh, contracts or covenants or agreements that that people would make with each other. One, One kind, though, is what's called a suzerain vassal treaty. The suzerain is like, is like the, the, the nation that's the strong nation. This would be a nation which has power, it has army, it has prestige. The suzerain is going to be uh, this group, and they're going to make a treaty with, with what's called the vassal nation. The vassal nation is going to be the one that's weak. It needs protection. It needs care. It can't really take care of itself. And so they would form this very well-known kind of contract called the suzerain-vassal treaty or the suzerain-vassal covenant. And basically, the vassal, the weaker nation, gets guaranteed uh, benefits, uh, gets guaranteed protection. And in turn, 
the vassal would, would say, we'll give you this. We'll be faithful to all the requirements that you have. We won't go to any other nation and seek help from them. We'll never turn our back and you will always have fidelity toward you. And then in this contract, there were, there were these warnings of sort of like, okay, but if you don't, these are, these are the punishments. And it's kind of an incentive to be faithful to the suzerain vassal treaty. And the suzerain vassal treaty, I mean, these are just like totally common in the state. There are like six parts to it. And so the first part, and as you read the book of Exodus, it's so cool. This is like just completely following along those lines. The first part was the preamble. And the preamble just said, okay, who's like, who's making up this contract? And you read this, and remember it says, they said, I, Yahweh, the Lord, and then you, Israel. Those are the parties involved. The second part of it was the prologue. And that's like, how did we get to know each other? <laughs> our history. And Yahweh says, here's our history. I'm the one who delivered you miraculously out of Egypt. And then the third piece is the stipulations. These are just the laws themselves. Expectations laid down. Here's how you treat me. Here's how I will treat you. The fourth part is the witnesses. Who's, who's going to kind of make sure that, that this uh, treaty happens? And if, and if it doesn't, they kind of hold everyone accountable. And it's kind of cool. God himself says, I'm the witness. Okay? I'm doing it. Sometimes he uses the language of all heaven and earth are witnesses. Kind of lets you know this is a big deal. Like maybe heaven and earth even kind of hang in the balance at this moment. And then the fifth piece is the sanctions. These are the, the blessings if fidelity happens and the curses if infidelity happens. And then finally there's the, what's called the document clause. And this is basically, so when are we going to revisit this? Because <laughs> we don't want to forget this. How often will we get together and kind of, hey, let's, let's read over this suzerain vassal treaty so we can be sure we're both on the same page. We're both being faithful to it. And so God's really, really clear when he takes this nation that lost their identity out of Egypt and, he's, and he creates a suzerain vassal treaty with them, he's really clear what kind of relationship this is. It's a covenant, and it's a very specific kind of covenant. The Jewish writer Leon Cass makes this statement. He says, The central event in the national founding of the Israelite people is the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. See, the role of the law, this is that, that, that third piece of, of their identity, the role of the law was to be a guide for how Israel could do what God has always asked all people and wants all people to, to do, be faithful. I want fidelity. But he picks this one group out and he says, I'm going to tell you how, how specifically I want you to be faithful. And so he gives them what we call the Mosaic law, meaning it's, it's delivered primarily through Moses as the leader. And the Jews understand the Mosaic law to have like 600 plus, usually the number 613 specific kinds of laws. And these laws can kind of be grouped into like one, one of three categories if you think of these, and, and this is also in your, in your outline there. The first kind of category that, that these 613 laws might fall into would be civil laws. Civil laws are really kind of like, how, how do you relate to the government or the state, and specifically punishment? If you break one of the other laws, what's the consequence or the punishment that would be brought down on you? Major crime, minor crime, all those sorts of things that you could be tried for, you could be arrested for. Taxation falls underneath this civil law. The second category of law would be ceremonial 
or we could say ritual law. This has to do with, with worship. Now, this category makes up like the biggest block of all the Old Testament law itself. This gives really detailed uh, descriptions on how to worship. Like, what should the instruments be like in the temple? What should the temple itself be? When you come into the temple, how do you come in? What do you wear when you come in? What do you have to do to prepare to come in? When you're there, what is sacrifice like? What can you eat? All these sort of holiness laws of, of diet and appearance and activity that relate to ritual cleanliness or, or worship with God. And then the third category would be the moral category of the law. This is how we think and how we feel and how we act toward God. And similarly, this is how we think and how we feel and how we act toward our neighbor, toward this direction. Because remember, that was the original, the original picture was God creates us for a relationship and he wants fidelity this way and fidelity this way. And so this is, this is, the, this is the unchanging part. This is the part that is actually a reflection of, of God's nature himself. Now, there's nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere, that suggests that anyone is, is like saved accepted by God as, as being righteous, simply by keeping the law. It was never a means of salvation, but it was a gift from God. It was an amazing gift from God. It was the way that God was going to give to Israel to let them know, this, this is how you're going to express your fidelity to me. And it was to specifically to Israel. doesn't mean there aren't things that are found in common in other Outside of that, but this is the way he specifically said, I want Israel to express its fidelity to me. Um, see, one thing that it did was to set Israel apart from all of its pagan neighbors. Listen, listen to some of these words. I think this passage is up on the screen. Exodus chapter 34. I want to read verses 11 through 16. Really interesting statement here. God says to Israel, obey what I command, what I commanded you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going. This is Canaan is where he's talking about. Or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any of their gods. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. That's that fidelity piece. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land. For when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. And then you will choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons. And those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods. And they will lead your sons to do the same. See, we looked at, you remember this idea we looked at last week? It's this kind of really interesting just reality about life. And that is that you begin to look like what you worship. Remember that? You begin to, whatever you think is ultimate, you're going to start identifying with and taking on characteristics of that thing, whatever it might be. The prophet Isaiah in the future picked up on this very same idea or have this in mind when he brought this, he brought this message of warning to Israel, this message of, of judgment to Israel, because they were worshiping other gods, mere idols. 
just a statue, you know, different things like that. And he said, this, this has become ultimate to you. And Isaiah describes the people. It's kind of interesting. He says, um, you have eyes, but you don't see. And you have ears, but you don't hear. See, that's what the idols were like. Idols were deaf and dumb and mute. They couldn't act. They were impotent. And he said, you're becoming like them. You can't see reality. You can't hear truth. You're now blind and deaf to God himself because you're worshiping these deaf and dumb idols. See, instead of being Yahweh's people, a people who exemplified his character, you know, justice, mercy, caring for the needy in the land, they, they, they were full of greed, uh, unreliability, perverse sexuality. See, just like the Baal gods of the Canaanites. And so this is another huge truth that, that Israel saw as a result of receiving the Mosaic Law. That God's laws always reveal something about his character. God's laws, all of them. And this is one of the things that we as Christians, as we read some of these Old Testament suzerain vassal treaty statutes and laws for the Hebrew people, even if we're not called to follow them, it, it will reveal something to you about the nature of this God who has called us, who we find ourselves at one point in this journey. Listen to one passage here. This is Leviticus chapter 19. It's on the screen. This is, this is one of these laws given to Israel. And think, of, think about what's being revealed about, like, what, what is this God like? Leviticus 19, 9 through 14. When you reap the harvest of your land, these are farmers. This is an agrarian culture. Do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Verse 11, he says, do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And now each time he's, we have the word Lord, he's using his unique suzerain vassal covenant name, Yahweh, there. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. And here it is a third time. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. Isn't that really, any, anytime you see something in Scripture, here's like a little clue. Anytime you see something repeated three times, this is like, the, this is the author's way of putting like an underline under it, like, like an exclamation point. And what's so fascinating is look, look at how Yahweh connects these laws to his character, his nature, who he is. Israelites were to worship, and therefore, if this is true, become like somehow their God. Now, it's fairly obvious that these, these laws in the Old Testament, these, they're, they're not like exhaustive. They don't, they don't give details for every single possible situation. Um, let me look at, as a, for instance, verse 9 and 10, uh, when it speaks of the harvesting of the uh, welfare laws. The only field crop, or, or it only mentions the field crop, the wheat, the barley, etc., and grapes are mentioned. Um, so does this mean if someone is raising figs or, or uh, you know, something else, they don't really have to care for the needy? They don't, no, 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 of course not. Or think about this, verses uh, 13 and 14. The point of these statements about don't, 
don't, don't curse this person, don't put a stumbling block in, um, in front of the, the uh, blind person. The point of these statements prohibits, uh, with the uh, withholding of money, prohibits from withholding money from a day laborer. Now, what if a person said, well, what if I withhold the money for almost all night, and then right before, right, right before morning time, I give the money to them? You know, could I, be, could I be said to being just fulfilling God's law? See, this, this way of looking at the law is what a lot of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees in Jesus' day seem to think. But that's just, it's this narrow, legalistic selfishness. This is what the Bible means when it speaks of holding to the letter of the law, but not holding to the spirit of the law. Jesus says this in Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. See, if, if these laws are not an exhaustive technical description of Israelites, here's how you to make every single decision when you wake up and would you put red socks on or do you, or do you put blue socks on and when you go, do you, you give this or do you do that and as you walk down the street. If it's not that, then what, what, what were they really about? See, I would suggest that these laws reflect something about the, about the very character of God himself. And kind of, this is what life would look like if you lived under God's rule perfectly. This is how wholeness would look like if you lived under his rule, the New Testament word for that, his, his kingdom. Nevertheless, the covenant was really, really clear that people who sin against God do not deserve to live. That's in there too. But maybe, maybe like the most amazing thing in all of the Old Testament is that when people did not keep the law perfectly, God, God provided a procedure, a means, by which the sinner could escape death. And, and it was the substitute, by shedding blood, that, that they could receive the forgiveness of sins and the atonement. The only problem is this was like an ongoing means. I mean, like it never ended. Uh, you know, this, is, this is like worse than going to confession. I mean, the minute you're out, it's sort of like you're right back at that place of going, well, have I loved God perfectly and what I think and what I feel and how I act? No. There's, there's this brokenness. The problem is that that goes deeper than the mere outside activities of holding to just the letter of the law. See, then one day, Amidst all of the warnings and the, and the judgments of the prophets, one day, there's this glimmer of hope that comes. Because there's this Hebrew prophet named Ezekiel. And God speaks through Ezekiel. And he says, he says something soon. Now, I'm still going to judge this nation, but soon I'm going to do a new thing. And in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, God said this, in the midst of this suzerain vassal covenant and carrying out the requirements of when they hadn't held it up to it, he says, then, he's speaking of a time soon coming, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a, and this is really interesting, I'll give you a new heart 
I will put a, a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and you will walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. See, there was a promise, not just that we're going to revisit the law, we're going to come back to that document clause and we're going to read it again and because you don't get it, you've forgotten it. It's not just that. Somehow he's going to bring this original covenant to completion and then he's going to somehow like almost internalize the ability to carry it out in some way inside these people. Now remember the three things that gave them identity? If you go back there, you know, the one is this exodus. God says, I, I do the rescuing. We see from it that, that we, we need to be saved. And we cannot do it on our own. The divine presence, number two, this is the thing that distinguished them from all other nations, where he says, I will be with you. We need presence. So we need to be rescued. We can't do it on our own. We need God's presence. And the third thing, he gave them the law, which was a model of how to do life appropriately in a way that is faithful to God. And he says, I will give you something that will allow you not just to see a picture of what life under my rule looks like, not just to see a picture of wholeness. I'm, I'm going to put something inside you that will it'll almost be like a new heart. Well, that means thoughts and desires and feelings and beliefs and, and will and all this stuff. And there's actually going to be this new dynamic force, a new power within you that's going to enable you to, to actually imbibe these things, to live them out, to breathe them. It'll be a part of who you are. You guys, that's Jesus. Israel was told you need to be saved. Israel was told you need presence and you need a power to do what you've always messed up doing. That's Jesus. See, because Jesus, Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the ceremonial law because at the, at, the, at the pinnacle of the ceremonial law, it's about sacrifice. And Yahweh of the Old Testament in the person of Christ steps down and, and, and takes the sacrifice himself, becomes that perfect sacrifice once for all, Scripture tells us. And he fulfilled the civil laws because civil laws have to do with punishment. And Christ took the punishment that we deserve. And he fulfilled the moral laws because he is the only one who has ever perfectly obeyed the Father and what he thinks and what he believes and what he feels and how he acts towards him and toward others. And he fulfilled the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself, the self-giving picture. And in doing so, God, through Christ, he fulfilled he demonstrated complete fidelity to the old covenant, something that no one could ever do. It was completed. And then God established what he calls a new covenant. And Paul, the, the Hebrew scholar, wrote in 2 Corinthians 3, 6. He says, God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit brings life. 
And see, it was only made possible by, by something we're going to celebrate right now, something we celebrate every single week. The shedding of blood, not of bulls, not of, not of goats, but of the one who stood as the original witness. Way back in time, the suzerain vassal treaty, you needed a witness, and God said, I am the only witness. And the witness makes sure that fidelity happens. He says, I promise I'll make it work. And Israel can never, never make it work through every year's new kings, new leaders, but every single one is unfaithful. And he says, I'll make it work somehow. I will be faithful. And he says, and you need to receive it by fide, by faith alone, not by the works of the law. That's what a God we have. I'm going to ask our ushers to come, and they're going to distribute the elements of communion. And during this next song, if you're a follower of Jesus, take the elements. You don't need to be a member here. If you're not, uh, uh, if you haven't begun that relationship with Christ, you could let them pass, and that's fine. But hold them if you would. We're going to come back together and take them. This is the symbol of how fidelity has been met. Somehow in the person of Christ through his sacrificial death, his body and his blood. Would you stand with me if you're able to? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, about to fulfill the ancient suzerain vassal treaty, that he witnessed himself, he said to his followers, this is your defining moment. Whatever you think defines you in life will be your ultimate thing, and you'll become like it. And if it doesn't, if it can't bear the weight of your soul, it'll crush you. This, though, is freedom. And it's this upside-down kingdom. It's this losing your life to find it. Think it's totally different. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, I pray for anyone in this room who would say, I need that to define me. I need the sacrificial death of Christ to define who I am, to give me meaning. That that would be where I find my purpose, my telos, my end. Because I've tried so many other things and they just don't work. God, we want to be a people who are defined by these elements that we hold in our hands that we would be a people of this kingdom of this message and we would live it out and you promised God that you would give us hearts of flesh taking away our hearts of stone new hearts which can think and believe and feel and act in accordance with your kingdom and so God as we take these elements tonight we proclaim your son's death in the past as our defining moment, and we look forward to his return in the future, our defining hope. Let's take the bread, his body broken. And the cup, his blood shed. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for all of your your graciousness to us. Thank you for the covenant that you fulfilled 
the new covenant you inaugurated. And we live at a, a crazy time. We don't understand everything. We have a lot of questions. Thank you. You've given us your spirit inside us. You've given us the person on our right and on our left. You've given us community. God, we're grateful. And I pray that like the sound of that rain on the roof would be the sound of our feet walking out into your world to fulfill what it is that you are calling us to. Help us to be faithful, God, no matter what happens. You define us. We proclaim it. We proclaim it in that name that is matchless, Jesus. We all said together, amen, amen. Hey, because it's raining, you're not going to want to go outside for a little bit. So go get some coffee, get some water, get, get, get a snack in the back. If you've got kids, go get them, bring them back and hang out and just be community together. Our prayer team is going to be up front. We'd love to pray with you guys. Love you. Have a great week.